Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Joshua Marquez. It's a good thing to say that out loud. You're the second Marquez I've had on, and the first one I had on, I realized that it was pronounced Marquez and not Marquez. Uh, so for the people who don't know that it's pronounced that way, that's why I always have the guests say their name. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, I'm a composer, uh, primarily. I'm a an improviser and musician, and uh, yeah, just kind of a sound artist. Anything with with weird sounds, I'm I'm down with it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I checked out your music, um, and like, I love. I've been listening to like noisy stuff lately, and so it's like, oh man, this is right up my alley. So <laughs> awesome. awesome. Um, I guess. Yeah, let's let's start with how did you first get started in music? Oh man, well since I was a kid, I've always been really interested in sound, and you know I was kind of like a latchkey kid when I was when I was really young. So I had to find ways to entertain myself, and uh, my family owned a flea market or not a flea market. They owned a, a, an antique shop, and we would go sell furniture at flea markets and and different things like that. So uh, when I was a kid, I would you know, run errands and stuff for all of these dealers by dealers. I mean like, like furniture dealers, not like drug dealers right, or right. something. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to clarify. And, uh, they would give me like a dollar or two if I ran and got them a sandwich or whatever. So, uh, I'd end up entertaining myself. And on weekends I would go around to all of these, these like junk dealers and antique dealers and buy like weird instruments or buy, uh, I like to buy tape players, like like old cassette cassette players, and I would just make soundscapes with them. I'd record like street noise or myself, and then I would layer it by taking a second tape tape recorder and sitting it next to each other, rewinding the first one, hitting play, and then hitting record on the second one, and then you know layering it that way, uh, kind of like sound on sound, but like less, less eloquent <laughs> with what I could afford for like, you know, a $5 tape recorder. Um, so I've always been interested in sound. And then, you know, I kind of did the normal by normal. I shouldn't say normal. I did what a lot of, uh, musicians do where in elementary, middle and high school, I started taking, uh, the public school, uh, like music courses, like band orchestra, and started playing clarinet, which turned into saxophone, which turned into bassoon by high school, which turned into horn and bassoon, which turned into like playing some trombone. Um, and I went to go study music for like the better part of a decade in college. And uh, yeah, so it's just been like constantly being pulled, pulled back into music. Like there's a gravitational pull. There's an interest with it that I can't quite escape. If that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh who were your biggest influences whenever you were, I guess, first messing with like the tape stuff, but then actually starting into like playing instruments? I don't know if I had any, any like direct, like experimental or tape based people when I was doing that. That was mostly just like, like me as a kid being weird, um, which is what I still do today, just like slightly with slightly nicer and slightly like less nice equipment on both ends of the <laughs> spectrum. Yeah. Uh, right. Like I'm digging around looking for old, um, like I have this, I was just using this the other day, like this, it's from 1965, I think it's in uh, Akai 100 XD and it's awesome. But like, it is nicer than what I had, but I also have tape, tape recorders and, and tape decks that are like really crappy that, I had nicer ones when I was a kid. So I didn't have anybody specifically doing that kind of stuff, but I would buy tapes all the time, whatever the cheapest one, uh, whatever the cheapest ones were just to get as many as I could. Uh, so I listened to a lot of like Sammy Davis Jr. Um, and a lot of bootleg tapes, you know, cause it was an antique, antique stuff. So like people were, were selling shady stuff all the time you know, kind of like bootleg DVDs or something, but like bootleg tape cassettes. I remember listening to a lot of different artists. Yeah. But nobody doing like tape stuff. So then who are you listening to now that are kind of your, your biggest influences now? 
Oh, that, that's always a tough question. I think specifically relating to what I'm putting out now, and I don't know what you what you checked out, but I'm I'm kind of like, I have like the concert music where it's like notated and it's more like traditional score based notated things, and then I have more of my like electroacoustic or electronic work that's more um, tape based and noise based or ambient based. And on that spectrum, I'm listening to a lot a lot of like Tim Hecker and the cranky artists or like Carly's Coverdale. Um, I mean like way too many to name, but like that kind of aesthetic of heavily processed acoustic instruments, which is what I primarily uh, make. Well, I, I make a lot of sound using, uh, I think pretty, pretty audibly acoustic instruments that are processed usually in real time. Like I don't like to do a lot in quote unquote post. I don't like to do a lot in a, in a DAW or something. I like to take it and run it through uh, guitar pedals or like outboard effects or just record it in a weird way in a really cavernous room or in a cavernous space or use really bad microphones. I think are really great effects and, and ways to, to process things. Um, or I'll take like speakers and put them next to symbols that are broken and then play back something and record the playback as it's being emitted through sheet metal or something like that. That's kind of a, a new thing I'm doing or running it through, um, you know, these tape, these tape machines. Uh, if you're familiar with, with like William Basinski, uh, disintegration loops where he had like, he's recording and recording and they keep getting degraded. And so people have probably before that, but, but definitely since that have taken these tape these, these magnetic tapes and kind of crinkle them or cut them or, you know, kind of uh, destroyed them in a way and then record and then play back and then just further destroy and record and play back so that you get a lot of, a lot of these like uh, analog artifacts or these like artifacts like that. There's this big, like, I don't know, you and I are, are kindred spirits and, and all the stuff that you're talking about. So I, I love it. So, <laughs> so like, there's this weird line between where music and sound collide. And it, it sounds to me like it's never really been different for you. Like, yeah, you, you did uh, all the stuff with like band and playing all those different instruments in, in the like classical setting, which is very much like the structure of sheet music is like play this note, uh, but it doesn't really worry a whole lot about the sound of it so i guess like it it seems like for you it's all been like music and sound are one in the same so i guess how has that been through your education and the way that you communicate with different people about the kind of stuff that you make about that that blurry line between music and sound yeah i guess not to push back a little bit but i do think you know classically trained musicians if we want to you know call them that like Western classically trained musicians and, and non-Western classically trained musicians are obsessed with sound. Uh, timbre, tone, technique is usually what's called into question how we, or how they, or we, whatever you want to say, how they phrase things, how they perform things. Like at some point, everything was experimental, right? Like who decided to rub horse hair on strings through this weird instrument and go like one day that's going to sound amazing. One day that's going to make people cry and, and things like, um, you know, more in, in popular music that we consume every day, uh, like electric guitar or synthesizer taking these sound waves that are, are quite destructive sounding isolated, but like you hear saw waves all the time in, in like top 40 hits and they sound amazing and they'll use it for like, you know, a whole bass thing, you know, whole, the whole bass track is just kind of like nasty sounding saw, sawtooths, you know, uh, slightly filtered and changed and augmented, but you know, it's, it's kind of gross stuff that we recontextualize. So for me, there's never been a question. Um, I mean, you can get into like philosophical question of like, if a car backfires, you know, on the street right now, is that, is that music? I, I don't think it's intended to be music, but it's sound that if I'm open to it, it's beautiful or it's, it's musical. So how do I tell people? I don't know. <laughs> I just go, well, if you don't like it, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's, um, I, I often use the word liminal in my, in my work to describe it, uh, which 
kind of abstractly talks about straddling the line or crossing the threshold, being in between two things. And for me, it's it's in between tone and noise, but it's also, um, you know, as a Filipino American, I, I very much take that cultural um, identity into my work in that I don't feel like I'm not, I'm not Filipino, but I'm not uh, like, accepted as American American, you know what I'm saying? Like there's this equation and the conflation of whiteness and Americanness in 2021, at least like, you know, in a, in a hundred years, that might not be the case, but right now there is this conflation, unfortunately. And I don't say that as a good thing. I say that as like an observation. Um, so I feel as though I'm in between these two worlds. I'm in this liminal state, this in-betweenness. So uh, that's usually how I present my work. And if it's performed in like a concert setting, it's usually listed in my bio or often my program notes. If it's digitally online with how we consume most of our music, especially during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, the majority of the music we're consuming is digitally hosted. So uh, I think the information is out there. But even if you don't listen to it, this in-betweenness, this awkwardness, this uneasy tension that's not like a super abrasive, but um, there's an uneasiness about it. I had a reviewer who, who reviewed uh, one of my more recent releases from late last year said, and I can't remember the exact line, but in the review, it's, it was something like, uh, the music is in equal measure uneasy and calming or something like that, like two opposite ends of the spectrum kind of balancing something out or hopefully balancing something out. Tell me about your experience being Filipino American. I, I was born in Venezuela and I, uh, have lived in the U S my whole life. And I, I really relate to that whole sort of like, I'm not fully necessarily from the country that I'm from, but I'm also not really American either. So I guess, how has that been expressed in your life? Uh, probably in, in similar ways to, to how you feel, you know, having, having people tell you to go back to your country when you're a kid all the way through, like, I don't see as many people now, but like all the way through like 2019, you know, like telling like, go back to where you came from. And we live in such heated political times right now where it's, it's becoming more and more frequent. Uh, but that's interesting that you say that and not to, not to bring up, like, I was listening to some of your podcasts actually today to prep. I was like, let's see what this is. Uh, see if I can, if I can get some inside scoop on some of the questions you might ask. And I was listening to one that you said with Troy, Troy Small. Um, and you were kind of saying like that you identify very much with white culture. And you're like, you said at one point, like you're 90% white and that you pretty much, you, you're pretty much white. So I think that's interesting that you're, I don't know if that's changed. Cause that, that podcast is a few years old, but um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah it does like change over time. And like in some, at some points, like, uh, I mean, especially because whenever that podcast was, is like the political turmoil was less that like, it was less scary for me to be Venezuelan then. And it's way more scary for me to be Venezuelan now. And so like, and while I still kind of culturally feel that way, I still like, I can't change the color of my skin. And so that's still something that yeah, don't wash is off, still going <laughs> to, yeah, it's still going to be a factor no matter what I do. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of good to hear. Cause I was actually kind of, kind of, I was shooketh. I was shocked when I, when I heard you say that and I was like, man, I was just reading this book. That's uh, I could, you're not showing the video, so I won't, I won't like bring it from my bookshelf and show you the cover, but it's this book by EJR David called uh, Brown Skin, White Minds, which is very much relating to a lot of the things I've thought about. It came out four or five years ago, maybe six years ago. And I've read through it cover to cover a few times. And it's just, it was really nice to, to read about this because it, it defines this thing called col uh, colonial mentality, which is something that I've had in my life. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the South. So, um, you know, as a brown kid in the South, the, in the 90s, it was just not, even in the 90s, like it's, it, at least it wasn't the 50s or something, but it was still rough. And uh, for me, 
there was a lot of aspiration to be whiter passing. Um, and I, and that, that's a negative thing. It's not negative. It's not anti-white or anti-anything. It's colonial mindset is this internalized oppression that we have as though our, our cultural heritage, in this case being non-white, uh, to be inferior to the dominant culture, which in this case would be a white dominant culture. And I don't say that as like white is bad. There's nothing wrong. I don't have any problem with white people. It's, it's a problem with this baked in cultural inferiority that a lot of us feel. And, and honestly, in that Anthony, uh, Troy Anthony Small um, podcast, there was a lot of colonial mentality language that, that came from you, uh, maybe a little bit from him too, um, and, and part of that's just shooting off the cuff, like boom, boom, boom. But these implicit negative associations, like you had pride saying there's not a trace of an accent in your, in your language, in your voice, in your quote unquote, you didn't, I don't think you used the word diction, but you were like, I, there's no accent. And you're like, I pass as white. I am 90% white. And I was like, man, there's nothing wrong with looking at yourself in the mirror and identifying with however, or whatever you want. But it becomes destructive when it becomes anti-Brown or it becomes anti-Venezuelan or anti-Filipino to the point where we want to excuse a lot of this destructive behavior in defense of those who are culturally dominant. So, you know, for me talking about the cultural experience, I know we're going off, I'm going off on a tangent right now, but no, hopefully please. this is okay. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. It's about... Yeah, it's about power dynamics. And, and I don't like to use the word power dynamic in like a in like an aspiration to power. Because there's there should be no power imbalance, which is what we're seeing in, in the United States today. And it's a power imbalance in favor of a racial majority, which would be white people, and not in at a disadvantage to racial minorities, which would be people of color, but also for something that's more it's not always a representative thing with population. We can look at the power dynamics and the asymmetrical relationships of uh, gender identity, right? So men have more power in the United States than women, and that's something we should strive to fix. And something that we are striving to fix, like slowly but surely, it's getting better and better and better. Um, but that is of relatively equal proportion, right? So it's not always a proportional thing where it's racial minorities always have minority control. And I think at the end of the day, if it's equally represented, I'm not, I don't think I'm not looking for like a, a power split. I'm looking for adequate representation. So if there's a 10 person committee and where I live now, it's 30, 35% um, people of color in this community, there should be three or four people on that 10 person committee that are of color. There should be a 50% representation of women. Um, we can keep going down these demographics, but the system works in that it does not favor that adequate representation. Uh, so, you know, for me, it's this concept of assimilation or integration and the, these concepts of imposed and elected identities, right? So like you don't, when we walk down the street, we're, uh, our identity is elected, or excuse me, imposed upon us that we're brown people, right? In some way, shape, or form. And we can elect and have a personal choice whether or not to accept or deny that. And I think there's one good way to do it, and there's one not as good way to do it. I don't think we should ever deny it. We should accept that. Um, in a non-racially uh, associated culture, we can talk about nerd culture. Like I'm a nerd. I've been called a nerd that has been imposed upon me. Like I've been, you know, I was a nerd in high school. I was a nerd. I'm still a nerd today. And that's something that I also elect for myself. And it's a non-racial cultural association, right? So um, there's power in, in claiming that. So for me, claiming Filipino Americanness is, there's a power to it in that I'm, I'm saying that it's okay. And I'm not having these implicit negative associations with um, those as I did when I was a kid, you know, I was very much ashamed of being Filipino as a kid. Um, and, and every year it gets better and better and better because I'm working on this. I'm working on decolonizing myself and um, working on decolonizing my craft, my work, uh, because where we come from, 
in terms of like our training, you know, as people who went to music school, conservatory, whatever, the majority of music that we study in the classical world is dead white European. music of a European flavor <laughs> that that has not been written for for at least a hundred, if not several hundred years. So when we have this Eurocentric, white centric, male centric, European centric um, view of what is seen as the cultural peak of music, it's really hard to live up to. And it's really hard when we become otherized. And so claiming that Filipino American uh, identity allows me a place to contextualize the work and decolonize the work and say, hey, you don't have to be dead white European and man to make adequate and, and, and decent contemporary classical music. I don't know. That's a yeah. really long-winded answer. I, I hope it addressed no, something. That's, that's well, because it's all cool. part of <laughs> everything that we do. It's it's all connected. It's all reflected in in the music, whether we like it or not. And so, the the hard part then becomes is like if we kind of like what you're saying is if we embrace it in ourselves and and see where that allows us to go. And the, the hard part, the hard part for me is like, also not like, I'm not looking for a participation trophy or like a, you know, like, Hey, congrats, you're Brown here, have a bonus. It's like, I don't, I don't want to have a bonus for being Brown. I just want to be treated like equally. Everyone should, you know, you want to be treated equally which is unfortunately not the case and when when people like myself bring that up there's a lot of white fragility or if i bring up like gender inequality and and as a male-bodied individual like i benefit from male privilege so you know bringing this up can bring up some male fragility or white fragility whatever the power imbalance whoever is in whoever whoever has an unequal share in a positive in, in a in a gaining position um, there is often a lot of fragility because it feels as though we have this pie chart and at, as we give more to minorities, we take away from the majority. And on some level that may be true, but on other levels, it may not be true. We just need to give more opportunity. And, you know, when, when the whole argument with affirmative action comes up and it's like, well, I don't want a handout. It's like, well, there's no handout, you know, nobody's walking down the street with a job offer and handing it to the first minority or woman or, uh, person with a physical difference and saying like, here, you get this job in upper management accounting with no, I'm not even going to look at your experience. You just have it. That's a handout. Nobody's doing right. that. You know, the mm -hmm. people that are applying for, I'll just stick with the example, upper management accounting jobs have, or should have, you know, credentials. I don't know who would waste their time applying to something if they didn't have the like adequate training, you know, have the training and credentials to be awarded that job, but are often overlooked. Um, through sometimes uh, implicit negative association or prejudice or bias, whatever you want to call it, or maybe don't have the same opportunities. And so you were saying you want to be treated like everyone else. Well, in 2021, we're, we're really kind of not, even if we get a little bit of like pat on the back every once in a while, because we're identifying as minorities, um, at the end of the day, it's still a net negative, you know, in terms of how we're treated every day. Like nobody's walking to the to the white person going, go back to where you came from. Like that's just not happening. Um, there was a great video that came out a few years ago. I don't know how many years ago, but I don't know if you saw it, if I describe it, I, I should have looked it up. <laughs> Cause I thought, I was thinking about it today and I was like, man, but it was a video where they had like a hundred people lined up on, I want to say a football field. And at the other end of the football field, they had somebody with a, with a megaphone saying, all right, I have a hundred, one hundred one dollar bills in my hand. Whoever the first one to get it gets to keep it or distribute it, however they see fit. And you, uh, so you're thinking it's a foot race. And he goes, "But hold on, we're gonna, we're gonna change the starting line for some people." So then he starts calling out, "If you are X, Y, or Z, take a step forward. If you're this, that, or the other, take another step forward. If this happened in your life, take a step backward." And so at the end of the, at the end of that. Uh, kind of like readjustment there's somebody like there's a handful of people 10 yards away from him and then he goes okay are you ready are your bark it's set go and the people at the back may actually be the fastest but the people 10 feet away or 10 yards away or whatever 
go grab the $100. So when we're talking about being treated equally, you know, things like affirmative action, although not perfect systems, do help close that gap in some way, shape, or form, which at the end of the day, seek to positively affect things down the road because I've worked for a few organizations and I've brought up the fact that we need to, to, to have some outreach, uh, cultural organizations that is, like music organizations. We need positive cultural outreach to communities that are uh, at, at some kind of lesser advantaged, uh, which are typically minority communities. Right, and so if we can provide more opportunities at a younger age, then all of a sudden those those kind of yards that are lost in that starting point get closed in future generations. It's not about taking away and making everyone step back; it's having everyone step forward, kind of equally. Um, so whenever I hear that handout argument or like a participation trophy, I'm like, man, that's that's a really negative way to look at. That's an implicit negative bias or a negative ethnic identity or association. And it's like, we shouldn't have any shame in that. Like, you know, you shouldn't have any shame. It's not a participation trophy. If you get something, it's not because your music or your art or your whatever, you know, you're a musician. So it's, it's not as though you're lesser, right? If you get a participant, I'm using air quotes, participation trophy. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah. Like I'm going to say, stop being negative on that, <laughs> especially sure, with yourself. Sure. So then how do you, communicate that in music because i feel like for me a, a lot of it a lot of this musical endeavor that we're doing is like trying to find the way to say things that only music can say so you're specifically asking like within notes and rhythms and pitches and tampers and all that sure if, if that's okay <laughs> if that's the words that you want to use to communicate it because that's that's the mystery of it anyways right <laughs> yeah and music is such a beautifully abstract form of art that it can take on any meaning so for me it's all about mood texture timbre things like this that evoke something um and going back to liminality thinking and trying to evoke something that is in between trying to evoke something that is that has this kind of um, traversing the spectrum of tone and noise or traversing the spectrum of whatever and whatever. Um, but for something without context, it's quite difficult. So if I can evoke those feelings of uneasiness yet not like harsh, harsh uneasiness, but like uh, pretty tranquil uneasiness, if we could use that phrase, um, that allows people to empathize with it because a lot of people feel this way. You don't have to be a racial minority to, to have these feelings of like not quite being accepted, not fitting in somewhere, um, being marginalized in some way. I think this is a universal feeling. Uh, and so using music and, and art to express that is a way to do it. But along with that comes a platform. Like you have a platform here on your podcast to have discussions that are uh, more culturally loaded or, or sociopolitically loaded. Not, not necessarily if, if you don't want to like do that, you have the, the right to not do that as well. Um, but as an artist, if I go for an artist talk or something, these things come up. And my question that I'll ask you that relates to this is how many composers of color, cause you're, you're a composer. So I'll broaden it though. How many people of color have you studied with in higher education? That size is yeah, a lot of things. It's, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's a, it's not a large number. <laughs> and proportionally, how many is it like 30%? Um, probably less than that, but yeah, like, well, and the yeah. weird, the weird part about it though, then is that like, when you take note of those people, for me, in my experience, I also think that like, those are also the people who are making the stuff that blows me away more. Yeah. Yeah. For, for any number of reasons, there's the, um, as an Asian American, I, I, I wish I, I could cite the, the, the source of this, but there's this concept of the 200% American, right? Uh, I, I think, I don't think, um, Eddie Wong uses this in his book, that phrase, but, you know, fresh off the boat, the, the novel, the, the memoir, and also the television show, 
right? The his father, and it's, it's a true story, had opened an American restaurant, not a Chinese restaurant or a Taiwanese restaurant, because he wanted to be so American that nobody could think he's un-American or like foreign or something, right? Like this loaded positive or excuse me, negative ethnic identity association. Um, and Eddie kind of reclaimed that later on in life and opened up, you know, uh, what's it called uh, Bauhaus maybe? No, that might be, I might be confusing him. I, 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 I'm not very good with the restaurants, uh, but he's writing about his Asian American experience very much in, in fresh off the boat. But these people you're studying with that are people of color, there are unearned disadvantages that they must overcome. And so really the quality of work just on its merit must be unquestionably amazing versus somebody who may have systemic advantages. We call it white privilege oftentimes. We call it male privilege. Uh, I, I really liked the way it was put a few years ago, there was discussion and, and the phrase unearned advantages were, was, was kicked around, um, in kind of like activist talk. And, and I really like that because there's nothing wrong with saying you have an unearned advantage. That doesn't mean I want anybody to have an unearned disadvantage, but when you are in, in the demographic that is in control, um, in terms of legislatively or policy, policy wise in control, in terms of financial institutions in control, in terms of educational uh, institutions and in terms of just broadly opportunities, then right, you can kind of skate by on some of that. So these these minorities that you're these people of color that you're studying with, and and I'll you know, also say how many women did you study with? Was it fifty fifty? You know, uh, probably not. <laughs> and that's a problem. Although, and it's also although it was yeah. a kind of larger proportion, and that does kind of say something else about like you know talking about the the male privilege thing versus the like the identification of whatever gender roles there might be and so it's like music is something that is more acceptable for women to do than it is for men and so there is still like a higher proportion in general of mu or women in music than there would normally be in any other industry whether we say like any stem sort of fields <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And it's not, yeah, it's, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Um, right. Right. You know, my mother's a nurse, which is a, a very woman uh, driven career. Um, but you know, like that, you know, whatever it's, it's all within a margin of error of you still, even though more women are involved in the, in, in the arts in general or music, um, it still wasn't a 50, 50 ratio because at the end of the day, those, those teaching those in, who have some kind of influence or impact or cultural control, i.e. the gatekeepers of educational, I don't even want to say knowledge, but like educational certifications, um, typically are white men at a certain age. Um, nothing, nothing against them individually or collectively. It's systemically what is going on. You know, I've, I've applied for jobs and I, I have a PhD in music and, uh, you know, good experience and a, and a good CV and all of that. And I'm, I'm like very humbled with a lot of people, but I'll see, you know, I'll interview for a tinker track job and I'll find out who gets the job later. And I'll, you know, I've, I've met some of the people that have gotten jobs over me in the past. And I'm like, man, you're a white dude with a master's from a really small program and no teaching experience. And you got the job over me. And, and I didn't blow the interview or anything, you know, like, there is this, some weird bias. Um, and I've met so many women who have had like also some really, really toxic work experiences because we live in a system that enables this. Um, like right. The, the hashtag not uh, as of like this week, I think it's, it's resurfacing hashtag, not all men. And I just disagree with that. It is not all men on its merits is true. Like not all men have committed egregious assaults and, and done all this, but it is up to all men to engage in positive discussions to dismantle um, toxic situations and promote gender equality, right? I think it's a fair assessment, you know? And so like hashtag not all men 
when you like step back and, and contextualize, you're like, oh, well, that's probably true. But its sole purpose is to be deconstructive in the, you know, Me Too movement. Uh, maybe that's like I'm coming in hot with that. I don't know. <laughs> don't come for me, you know. Yeah. Not you, but like no listener come for me, please. I do have more questions on the musical front, but uh, I also want to get to the difficult philosophical questions that make bit depth, bit depth. And uh, we will uh, continue that philosophical uh, musical discussion uh, on the next episode anyways. So, of course, to begin with, what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? Yeah. That's, that's always a tough question to answer, especially when it's being recorded. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> spirituality, I think, is, is the phrase I would use to describe my relationship with oneness and, and people. Well, just speaking on like the, the physical plane. Um, and I think musically some of the best work that I hear is not quote unquote, just like intellectual or like stimulating or like puzzle solving. It's a work that has a lot of empathy and we have empathy because we are all kind of interconnected in some way. That's not like, like avatar or something where we like hook our tails to the, to the plants or whatever. But like, there is this human connection. There is this interconnected connection that drives my work and this symbiosis with ourselves in the natural world um, that I think when we tap into it, it create, it helps us become better people and more empathetic individuals and less selfish and less self-driven, you know, and going back, just tying it in with some of the, the advocacy that I, that I do, you know, I shoot myself in the foot all, and this isn't to be like a martyr or anything, but I shoot myself in the foot all the time when I advocate for, you know, adequate representation and, and I encounter fragility. But at the end of the day, it's for that, that one moment that I, I called somebody out in a loving and compassionate way. And I'm just like, Hey, that was like racially loaded or, Hey, that there's not enough people of color on this X, Y, or Z. It's for the greater good. It's for us as people, as us as interconnected people. In uh, Brown Skin, White, White Minds by E.J.R. David, he talks about this uh, concept of collectivism and not in like a hive mindset, but collectivism in that we want the best for everyone in our community. And that doesn't necessarily mean just like an isolationist, like Filipino American community or Asian American, like a pan-Asian American community or like a racial ethnic minority community, but within our community at large. Um, and so this, this feeling of interconnectedness is, is quite spiritual to me. And the ritual of music is quite, uh, inducing and it induces me into that state of, of wanting to connect and connected connectivity. If that kind of, I don't know yeah, if that yeah. addresses spirituality <laughs> in, in, in like a broad, very broad sense, but for me that, that, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> what is your definition of God? That's another tough one. I think I, I struggle with that all the time. Um, at the end of the day, when we look at a lot of like religious things, God is kind of a moral compass. And it's, it's a way for us to find magnetic north, if you will. It's a way for us to achieve equilibrium and find what is the right thing to do like ethically and morally. So for me, like the concept of God lies within each and every single one of us, even if we don't identify it as like an anthropomorphic thing or an entity or like a, a physical manifestation or like a metaphysical manifestation, it is kind of the voice in the back of our head that drives us to do what we believe is good or righteous or positive. Uh, so for me, that's, that's how I identify God is being uh, the the guiding part. I don't know the guiding voice. If you yeah, will. yeah. <laughs> what is free will? That's tough. Free will is. Uh, I think we all have free will within cultural limitations, right? Like free will 
we, we have morals and ethics that guide us going back to the, the previous question. So we operate freely within the playbook that we kind of construct ourselves. Right. And sometimes it's driven by like going back to elected and imposed identities. I can elect my own guiding principles, but further I have imposed limitations put upon me, let's say culturally, right? The way I have to, I was gonna, I was gonna try to find like something really poignant to say, but I won't. Uh, you know, we we can't. I don't speed, right? Like, and that's both an elected and imposed limitation. I can't drive as fast as I want. I can drive as fast as I can, but I have to. I have to be willing to break, like, law, right? And it's not like a like a law of physics. It's a law of like a governmental legislative law, right? Does that make sense? Like we operate within several kind of realms or tiers of limitation, both self-imposed and, or self-elected and, and extra imposed upon us. What do you think happens when we die? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I, (laughs) that is an answer. I think that's, that's something that we don't say enough as people is I don't know. Like we always have to, and I think it's, it's not just a Western thing, but it's like a very much an American thing of like, we have to have an answer to everything when I'm talking to people and I'm like, I don't know. And they think you're still like, we have this, this insecurity of thinking we're stupid. It's like, we're not stupid. We don't know something like ignorance shouldn't be a loaded, a loaded phrase. I don't know how to build a. I, I'm not an architect. I can't design a house. I'm ignorant to that, but like, I can confidently say that. It's, it's okay not to know what happens when we die. And that's, that's fine. <laughs> How do you determine what good behavior is? It's tough. I think, um, I, I practice, I practice nonviolence daily. I, uh, uh, I'm a vegan. I don't think that eating dead flesh is, is a good thing, uh, for the environment, for other, for animals and for, uh, my health. So for me, it's, am I doing harm or am I doing good? And I'm not perfect with this. Like, you know, I'll, I'll be kind of mean and say something kind of, kind of snide every once in a while. And I'm like, ah, that's not a good thing to say. Right. It's, it's, am I creating more good by doing or saying, or, or thinking, not thinking, but like doing or saying something. So it's, it's kind of like the old uh, boy scout phrase, like you leave, leave something better than you found it. Yeah. Yeah. How do we reduce the division? Uh, we create equal opportunity and we create a more equi- equitable world. And we just remove insecurity. We remove fragility. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I'm not an economist or anything, but I think a lot of problems stem from this version of, of capitalism that we have. And I'm not like, like, a, like a super socialist or anything. I'm just... When we think about opportunity, when we think about division, it's often financial burdens and hardships that we're, we're talking to address. And we can't have, uh, yeah, I mean, we're fighting right now in, in Congress in, for a $15 minimum wage, which isn't even a living wage for a lot of places in the United States. And it's like, we're literally fighting for dignity or are we fighting for a small sliver of the country to not have uh, to, to feel not even an economic burden, but to give up a little bit more cash. Um, for, for instance, I think we, we, we eliminate or, or heal division by creating empathy and saying like, look, we're all in this together. Uh, and we need to, to recognize these really toxic hierarchies that we've already developed and break them or recontextualize them and uh, restructure a lot of inequity. And I'm, you know, that, that comes on a lot of different fronts. Like I feel like culturally that's probably the first way we go. Cause we look at a lot of people will point to like legislation or regulation and things like that. And I'm like legislation or regulation without support of people does not bode well. Right. Women got the right to vote because of political or social political movements, cultural movements, uh, voting rights act, civil rights. Um, 
A more recent example would be under Barack Obama's presidency, he campaigned and he was not for gay marriage in 2008. By the end of his presidency, there was enough uh, sociopolitical action and cultural movements that he changed his his policy to legalize um, same-sex marriage. So for me, it starts culturally. It starts with people. It starts with individuals and going back to like a collectivist mindset and universality and, you know, my kind of definition of spirituality of like bringing everyone together if we can. Do you believe humans are evil by nature? No, I, I don't. I think you ask any kid, kids aren't racist. Kids aren't sexists. It's, it's, it's taught either uh, overtly or covertly. Overtly means like it's very conscious, like parents or teachers or mentors or, or neighbors or whoever is in a, a kid's life kind of reinforces this negative thing. And more covertly, meaning representation in, in culture, in media. So when I'm like, who, what people of color did you study with? Um, you're like, not enough. Well, that's a representation and it, be, it, it becomes this implicit negative association or bias of, well, if I don't see anybody that looks like me, that sounds like me, that is like me, that comes from where I come from in, in, in a position of power X, Y, or Z, no matter what field or, or area you want to excel in, then it kind of on some level reinforces um, a negative association, which is why like the election of Kamala Harris is huge for, for women and, and people of color. Like it's, it's regardless of what you, what political persuasion you're, you're in, it's a big deal. Um, because representation matters. So are people implicitly evil? No, I think it's culturally entrained into us to, to think of, of others, whether it be like large swaths of people or individuals as lesser. But if we all kind of try to treat each other with respect and leave things better than we found them, then I don't think, you know, we would have these, some of these issues we might still, but. What do you think humanity is heading towards in the future? That's a, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I have hope. I think um, anybody that kind of identifies with activist causes, activists are, my, you know, and I include myself in this, are some of the most optimistic people, you know, uh, I fight for systemic change because I believe that systemic change can come. And I believe that if, if we fight hard enough, and I, I don't like to use the verb fight, but if we advocate hard enough, then it will come. It's a matter of changing one heart and one mind at a time. Uh, things like climate change are scary to me, which is you know a big reason why I advocate for like veganism. People might think it's weird or extreme, but it's like, it's something that we can do every day. We vote with our dollar. We vote with our plates. Uh, we vote, you know, vote in a very metaphorical sense. Um, we can advocate for things like that. And if we can take personal responsibility to limit our destructive natures and promote positive habits and, and, and things, then, then I have good hope. I have great hope uh, for humanity becoming more... Uh, peace-loving and, and equitable and, and having a planet to live on and not colonizing Mars as like an immediate, <laughs> like we don't need to do that. We just take care of this one. This yeah. planet's great. Which actually leads into my next question, which is what are you optimistic about for our future? People, people, uh, was the, the progressive politicians would be like, you know, you've got the money, but we've got the people. I believe people, in general, going back to the are people evil, I believe people generally want good. And I think when when you look at people who are have very opposite or or different viewpoints from me, I don't see them as necessarily evil. I see them as that's their version of good. And how can we come into the not the middle? Because I don't believe that, like with Black Lives Matter, what's the middle? There shouldn't be a middle. Like stop. Killing, stop killing black people like that's that's <laughs> yeah. the middle and it's it's literally one side versus another side like i don't understand what the other side is or things like you know 15 dollars minimum wage that is the middle and it's still not quite enough but 
but it's about uh, having these open and honest discussions and breaking down insecurities and breaking down fragility because it doesn't help anybody. All it does is create more heartache and division. So I have great hope in people. And that's what I'm most optimistic about. When will you be satisfied? The, the, the Dmitry Shostakovich quote, or at least a quote that's attributed to him is uh, speaking about music, but more broadly, a, a, a good composer uh, keeps composing because they are not satisfied with their latest work. So contentment is often conflated with complacency. Uh, we can still push to be better. We can still push to be kinder. I like to practice radical kindness and radical compassion, but practicing radical compassion does not mean practicing radical complacency. So for me, I can be content with, you know, uh, my home, my work, my latest work. I can say like, that's, that's good. I can, I can let that go without guilt or shame or fear. But, uh, if anybody has optimism and aspiration for a better anything, um, you can be both satisfied and, and hopeful. You know, you can't really be, it's not an either or, it's kind of a both and. Um, I'm satisfied with a lot of things personally in my life, but I'm not satisfied with a lot of things. I'm optimistic about things or I'm, I'm determined about things or I have a drive about other things. You are so good at just segueing me into all of my next questions because the next question is what makes you content? I don't know. I, I think contentment is a very subconscious thing. You know, it's it's not something that we it's something that we should all aspire to be more conscious about. And, you know, if I practice yoga, which I try to do every day or something like that, it brings forth this contentment or this ease you know, this, this inner peace. Um, yeah, it was the question, how, repeat the question what one more time. Content. Yeah. What makes me content? <laughs> That's right. I was like, how do you know when you're, that was the last kind of question. How, what makes me content? Uh, what makes me content is the, the belief that tying back in that I've done what I could to leave something better. And, and I'm not perfect in this. I've done a lot of not great things, but knowing that I have a, a net positive gain of leaving things better allows me to be content and also kind of fuels me to, to further that, um, whether it, through, it, it be through like music or through my advocacy for, for racial, racial reconciliation and racial uh, representation or, or gender identity representation, things like that. It, it, it can allow me to take little celebrations and, and moments where I go, we did something. Now what's next? Yeah. Now what's next? Yeah. What's the point? Oh, that's a good one. Cause it could be, what's the point of anything? Um, <laughs> do you want to specify or you want me to just, just roll with it? I always enjoy hearing where people go with that, with how open-ended that question is. <laughs> what's the point? It's, uh, to be better in ourselves and, and others. You know, I, I think spreading goodness, spreading, spreading positivity. And that's where like, I was a little hard on you with, uh, maybe I wasn't that hard on you, but uh, with, with some of the, the answers you gave with previous podcasts. And I'm like, you need to have a positive ethnic identity. It doesn't mean you have to um, like be radical about a lot of things, but having a positive association with yourself and with others and about yourself and about others is is the point, you know, why do we make music? Because we love it because we can't, but not because we can't, because we have to. That was a great, I studied with a, with a guy who would always ask that knowing that there's, there's only one answer. And he was kind of dogmatic about it. And he was like, why are we composers? And it would be in a composition seminar. We'd all be like, because we, uh, because we have to. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of a good answer of like, we, we have to, it's in our, it's in ourselves to do it. So what's the point is I don't believe humans are evil. So we, we want to spread good and we want to be content just to tie everything in, sum everything up and try my best. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's the point. And some of us have like distorted views of that or perceived distorted views of what 
good is. Why music? Why not? No. <laughs> Why music? Because I just have an obsession. For me personally, I have just this obsession with sound. Um, and I really get lost in it. And I, I, yeah, sound in general, I get lost in. And there's so much for me that is music, right? Um, that it's just my connection to the world. It's my connection to a lot of things. And it's how I feel as though I can be the best, the most expressive myself. Um, it's what I find comfort in and what, what I like to do most with my time. What's something about you that people don't normally know? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess it depends on who the person asking is. <laughs> oh man. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm, pre, I'm an open book about a lot of things. Like if, if it's asked, I don't really hold back that much. So I don't know. I don't know what, what people don't know about me. That's, that's a good question. Cause it's like, I could think of like trivial things maybe, but they like, don't really matter. Yeah. Well, it matters to you. You're <laughs> <laughs> what well, doesn't matter. To me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, there's nothing much that people don't know about me. If you ask, you shall receive some kind of answer or, and I don't know answer if it's like, you know, I'm not afraid to say that. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say, I don't know to this question too. I don't know. Cool. <laughs> what advice do you have for people that want to do what you're doing? Develop a very nuanced self-awareness and self-critique. You have to be critical of your art, of yourself, of your place, of everything in order to better your craft. So, so that you can, yeah, you don't have to be, be reliant on other people. Like I, I teach every summer in Indiana for a couple of weeks and it's mostly like upper undergrads, a lot of like master students looking for, for doctoral programs. And that's always the thing that, that I, I push. I'm like, be critically self-aware, like understand how you could better your craft objectively and subjectively. Like, don't be afraid to hurt your feelings. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that's going back to being in check with like white privilege or, or male privilege or like hetero, like cishet privilege, you know, understanding that you may or may not have some kind of advantage or somebody may or may not be marginalized and being critically self-aware is directly tied into empathy, which for me, and speaking just as, as an artist, that is the most important thing for art. And that's the art that I enjoy the most is art that is deeply empathetic and deeply connected. So, and if you're critically self-aware, then you can, that doesn't mean you're like a pessimist or that you're like, beating yourself up all the time, but it's, it's keeping yourself in check. And that includes like giving yourself a pat on the back, giving yourself an attaboy if that's, that's needed or called for. Um, we can't have self-love without self-respect. Um, so going back to positive ethnic identity, like take pride in that and take pride in a lot of things, but also be aware of yourself and your surroundings so that just to tie it all back, uh, we can leave our, our, we can leave something better than the way we found it. Yeah. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. What advice do you have for people in general? Same, same. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're doing, how you identify what you're thinking, like be better, be aware. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and lastly, potentially most importantly, Cake or pie? That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> cobbler. I'll go cobbler, which is like a messy pie. It's just deconstructed a little bit more. So uh, I've never been cake. I've never been a cake person. Like when I was a kid and I didn't like cake. I, I like on birthdays and stuff, I was like, I don't want cake. So I get like a cookie or something. And I wasn't like even so stoked on that. I have a sweet tooth. I like, uh, I like fruit a lot. So I'm like, pie is, is usually fruit-based, right? Not all the time. You can have like a chocolate pie or like some kind of uh, filled pie, but yeah. Joshua, thank you so much for doing this with me uh, to wrap up the first podcast. Thank you so much. Where can we find you and your things? 
So everything is, is linked. So if you just go to one, you can find them all. Uh, I have a website, joshuamarquez.com. And then I'm on Bandcamp. You can search me there. Uh, I have a lot of music on Spotify, not all of it, um, but quite a bit on Spotify. And you can find me on Instagram at Joshua Marquez Music. I don't have a Facebook or Twitter, so that's not me. But uh, if you find somebody, and uh, that's not me. But uh, my website has most everything linked on the homepage so that you can just click on the Spotify link and it'll take you right there, which is probably where most people consume their music. I, I think statistically it's, it's the biggest platform. So maybe not. Wherever you're... Uh, uh, I have a lot of music on like Amazon and, and Apple Music too, but just search. Cool. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Joshua Marquez. This is Standing Still While My Head Slowly Burns by Joshua Marquez.
You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. I have an EP, a short album, that will be releasing on May 28th. It's six instrumental electronic tracks that didn't quite fit into a major release. It's called Sound Bites, and it'll be the first of many EPs that include stray songs, pieces, or recordings. Be on the lookout for that, and follow me on Instagram to stay up to date with all the stuff that I'm doing, both at bit.depth and at Santiago Ramones Music. If you like the podcast, leave comments on social media, leave reviews saying how much you like the podcast, and tell your friends about it. I really couldn't be doing this without you, and I'm super grateful to continue doing BitDepth for this long. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting BitDepth. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.